Hi, everybody. Welcome to today's webinar. I am Mark Raven, Senior Advisor with Kinexus. And today's webinar is titled, A Great Idea Isn't Enough for Successful Change. And we, I'm really excited that we have uh, Dr. Mark Jabin um, as our presenter today. I think we have uh, a lot to learn from Mark. It's going to be really thought-provoking, and I, I know he's looking forward to your, your questions and opportunities to interact here and after the webinar. So let me introduce um, our presenter, Dr. Mark Jabin. Mark is a residency-trained, board-certified emergency physician with over 35 years of clinical experience. After 20 years in a single hospital group, he spent the next 13 years as an independent emergency physician practicing in a wide range of settings, including hospitals, Indian health service facilities, office practices, and EMS services. His initial immersion into lean came in 2008 while he was living and working in New Zealand, where Mark had the opportunity to test lean methodologies while leading implementation efforts at a hospital there. After returning to the US, he continu continued to apply these concepts in emergency departments, hospitals, clinics, and regional collaborations. So when observing the successes, as well as the trials and tribulations, this led Mark to delve further into why the stuff does or does not work. So that led to his newly released book titled Free the Brain, Overcoming the Struggle People and Organizations Face with Change, which takes a look at what neuroscience research says about how the brain operates, and it provides some real insight into what prevents an organization from getting results thereafter from whatever methodology they're using and what it takes to garner engagement and tap into creativity. So Mark is gonna share thoughts around that with us today. But final thing about Mark, he also works with individual physicians who are struggling with burnout. Um, he works as a coach with thehappymd.com. This is an important mission. Um, works with organizations through presentation and training. So Mark's intersection between clinical work, coaching practice, and his book, Free the Brain, um, I think it really helps with our understanding um, around you know, why change can be so challenging and yet so rewarding. Um, so with that, Mark, I will hand the floor over to you. Thanks for being here today. Well, thanks, Mark. I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate all of you who are out there listening today and in, listening in the future. So much appreciated that, um, that you're here. So here are our objectives today. We're going to talk a bit about how change actually takes place and understand a little bit more about how the intersection between the brain and the person affects that, and then hopefully come away with refining your strategy for addressing change in your organization. So when it comes to change, it's certainly an organization, everyone seems to fall into one of three groups. Either you're asking others to change, you're being asked to change, or you're somewhere in the middle usually tasked with taking someone else's request and asking others to adapt to that. And so usually if you follow the organizational chart, uh, it'll follow that in terms of senior leaders, frontline staff, and middle managers, but not always. So the fundamental unit of change is the interaction between two people. And that interaction revolves around the story each person holds about what's going on and what each person believes about the issue at hand. So I want to take an example here, um, and it's a political example, but I'm not here to push a political agenda. It's just that political examples are very highly charged and help us sort of demonstrate the points really well. So, so here you go. Um, and before we get to that, let me just pose a question to you, which is, have you found yourself in the situation, in this situation, where a change is brought up and you're getting pushback? And despite additional data and metrics that support that change being a good idea, there's still pushback. Or maybe you hear about a change, uh, but you're feeling it's not such a great idea. And despite all the data and metrics, you still don't buy it. So if you will, think about that experience that you've had and hold that in your mind as we work through all this. So here's, let me demonstrate. The question is, do you think the economy is better now than it was at President Trump's inauguration? So on the one hand, you can see the stock market's way up, unemployment's way down, wage growth is finally coming up, and GDP growth has been really good. But maybe not. Um, did President Trump really inherit an economy that was in shambles? Prior to that, the market was up 68%. And you can see these other metrics that look the same or a little bit better. So but let me ask you this as well. Whether you like President Trump or not, how do you think that belief has influenced your opinion 
that you hold about the state of the economy. So whatever you believe, here's my question to you. Do you believe you studied the issue and then formed your opinion? Or did you form your opinion and then examine the data to find support for that opinion or belief that you held? Which is true for you? Which comes first, opinion or analysis? So here's how it works from the brain standpoint. Your brain looks at everything as a problem. And a problem is something that has a solution. So for instance, think about a flat tire. You're driving down the road, you have a flat tire, you have a one-step action that will fix that. Change the tire and you're off and running. And that's how your brain <laughs> your brain prefers to see everything. So it sees an issue, it wants a solution. Let me show you a little bit how this works in the brain. So here's an example. You have a flat screen TV that you want to buy and you've researched it carefully and you found just the model with just the features that you want. And you can buy it at store A for $229 or you can buy it at store B for $259. So tell me, which one do you choose? And what if there are some additional features to be had? Excellent warranty service and 90 day return. Now, which do you choose? Fact of the matter is that the one that you choose in the first instance is a very different question than what you choose in the second instance. And they each use different areas of the brain. So think of it this way. In the first example, wasn't it easy to make a decision? Didn't take much energy, did it? That's where your brain likes to solve problems in its analytical space. But in the second, it took more attention and focus. And if you depend upon your analytical decisions, your functions, to answer which TV to buy in this example, then you're likely going to experience paralysis by analysis as you go over and over the pros and cons hoping for an answer. Those functions are not capable of judging the trade-offs and determining what matters to you. And that is a value judgment. So why does this matter? Because your great idea is a solution to a problem. And whether or not the other person believes this is a viable solution to their problem is an opinion. It is based on a value judgment. It's not a determination made with analytical functions. That judgment uses a different brain function. And so if you're justifying your idea with data and facts and metrics and still feeling resistance and pushback, you may well be aiming at the wrong point of cause. And your great idea may not be so great. And for all your efforts, what you get is what I call dueling solutions. So an opinion is a story that encapsulates this value judgment. What matters to you? What matters not so much? What to include? What to dismiss? And what's critical for success? This takes place in what Shankar Vedanta has termed the hidden brain, functions that take place well before awareness. And it is in the hidden brain that a person weighs those options and possibilities and makes a judgment. And only then is that choice, that choice sent into your awareness. The message is communicated using emotions, which is a much faster way to transmit how you feel about something. So it's the analytical functions that attach words and labels so it becomes a story you can share and relate to, something you can control and manipulate. So let's think about politics again for a moment. You can discuss policy all day, but when you ask a person who they will likely vote for, how do they phrase it? They don't go into detail about the policy, do they? They say something like, I like so-and-so. Very telling, isn't it? It's a much faster way to transmit the message about your choice. So the preferred pathway for the brain is to act like a press secretary. Take its choice, take its story, send it into awareness, and expect that these analytical functions use their vast power of analysis and deliberation to gather just the facts, memories, and experiences to rationalize, justify, and defend that story. And your brain knows that for you to truly act on the story, you need certainty that is the truth, something you wholeheartedly endorse. But the truth is that your truth is really an opinion. This is a study that I, that I found very helpful by Gregory Burns and colleagues. And what they did was they took people who had very strongly held view, and they put them in a functional MRI as they described that view. And what they saw light up was the person's amygdala. Now, your amygdala is the sort of the flight or fight, flight or fight stress response area of the brain. And the representative chemical that it secretes is adrenaline. So if you stop and think about the effects of adrenaline, it shunts, muscle to your, uh, shunts blood to your muscles so that you're ready to act. It cones down your vision so that you focus just on the threat exactly in front of you, not exactly 
um, an environment for considering other options and views. So they took those people out of the functional MRI and they asked them, we pay you $100, would you vote differently on a survey we're about to give you? Some people would, and some people would not. They took the people who were willing to change their view and they put them back in the functional MRI. And what they found out was that now, rather than functioning in the amygdala, what was lighting up were other areas of the prefrontal cortex, which means that if you have somebody who has a very fixed, very staunch view of something, forget having a conversation with them. They're not in a frame of mind to consider other versions of the story, even if it's a better one. So it turns out that um, your great idea is really just an opinion, a hypothesis, a theory, one that attempts to give you the best opportunity it can muster to be successful. And don't underestimate the ability of the analytical functions to defend one's story. That's why we should all beware of certainty. So before we unpack this a little bit further, Mark, let's take a pause and see if there are any questions out there. There are not any questions that have come in so far, but you know, one I'll just add a you know a comment. Um, I, I think one thing that really resonates with me is uh, you know chuckled when you said you know be like be like a press secretary, um, rationalize, justify, and defend because I, I certainly see a lot of that behavior um, pop up in different ways in different organizations, and you know I think it gets in the way. I don't know if you're you know, touch on this later, I think it gets in the way of good scientific uh, problem solving. When we've made up our mind that something is a good idea, we're probably not in a position to feel like testing a hypothesis. We just want to plow forward and implement. So I'm curious if you, you, you could elaborate on uh, some of that a little bit in like a, you know, a workplace scenario that, that you're aware of. Yep, we're going there for sure. Okay, so I guess... Maybe it was just foreshadowing more so than a question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right no, let's push no, no questions coming in, but. Okay, good. So um, let's take this a little bit deeper uh, to give you a little bit better understanding about what's actually happening in there. Because this is what your hidden brain does when it forms its story. It does this by examining the circumstances and looks into his storehouse of patterns, hoping to find one it can match with the circumstances at hand. And why? Because it takes less energy to do that. No reason to reinvent the wheel unless you have to. And here's an important thing. It doesn't need to be a perfect fit. As far as your brain is concerned, close enough is good enough. And I'll give you an example of this. If you've ever watched Wheel of Fortune, you know, they put up letters one by one. The person doesn't have to see the whole thing to get the answer, do they? They just need to see a pattern there, enough of a pattern that they know the answer. Um, so it's very interesting that there was an event in March of 2019 where the letters up on the screen spelled out a streetcar in a dash ed desire. That's what was up there. One letter left. The guy spun and he got $600. Pat Sajak asked him, what's the answer? And he said, K. And there was total silence in the, in the audience, and Pat Sajak was dumbfounded because everybody knew it should have been M, a streetcar name desire. So your brain gets it right most of the time, but not every time. So the question then is, um, how does it do this? Excuse me a second. So <clears throat> there's another important point to this as well, which is that when it's looking around amongst these storehouse of voices and possible stories, it's not a mediated settlement. And you can imagine that there might be several stories that might actually apply to a given situation. They just have to be close enough. But it's not a mediated settlement. It's the loudest voice wins. And here's an important point, because those other voices are still in there. They're just drowned out for now. And But if you change the circumstances or change what matters, uh, perhaps another story is a better fit. I mean, after all, people do change their mind. But most often, it's something that was already in there. So what gives one voice a lot, helps one voice be louder than the other? Well, that depends on its notion of success and what it fears if it fails. It doesn't reinvent the wheel here either. It looks at what I call its worldview or ideology. This is um, 
how you believe the world works and the rules used to navigate it. It is something that comes from our genetics, from our upbringing and our experience. So for instance, if your ideology tells you that you are at the mercy of a dangerous world and you live in a dangerous neighborhood, do you think this might affect whether you think in terms of gun safety or gun rights? So these are deep-seated and in most cases sacred values. And when you challenge a person's story, in essence, you're challenging those sacred values. That's how it feels at a hidden brain level. This is perceived as challenging someone's self-worth and self-esteem because these are very closely held views for most people. So the brain then takes that tapestry and it weaves into it the particular concerns for the given issue at hand. It's what I call the sorting criteria. These are the potential benefits if, if successful and the possible risks and failure for that given issue. And some of these concerns, of course, we're well aware of. So think about metrics in your organization. But what the hidden brain is doing is really prioritizing amongst all the criteria to decide which ones matter the most. That's what becomes the loudest voice. That becomes the story that addresses the matrix of concerns close enough. So the result of applying one's foundational rules, what I call the worldview or ideology, against the possible benefits and risks of the particular issue, what I call the sorting criteria, is what determines what success means in that situation. So that notion of success revolves, the story revolves around that notion of success. And success is in the eye of the beholder. It's a value judgment. It's not an analytical equation. And success is the representation of the world as I want it to be. It's set up the analytical functions to fill in the details, symbol just supports the story, and dismiss that which does not. The goal is an opinion which provides certainty and a solution that will deliver on that story. And that's your great idea. So tell me, what is the chance that in the fundamental unit of change, each person's story overlaps exactly? What's the chance that one person needs to be successful fits perfectly with what the other person needs? What's the likelihood that they are being judged upon is exactly the same for each person? And I'll give you a hint here. It's a four-letter word. It starts with Z, and it ends with O. And what it means in the fundamental unit of change when there's not enough overlap, when the stories differ too much, what you end up with is what I call dueling solutions. And that's a dead end to nowhere, as each person just rationalizes, justifies, and defends their own story and their own solution. So inside the fundamental unit of change, an ideal change must work, and it must be workable. It must address the issue at hand, and each person must feel is something with enough possibility to be successful in their responsibilities, with enough possibility that makes it worthwhile to pursue. So what works can be determined using an analytical process. But what's felt to be workable is an opinion, a value judgment, and a decision made in the hidden brain. So inside the, the fundamental unit of change, there must be enough overlap between the stories and between the notions of success for a person to feel it is worthwhile to invest themselves to work out the details. Your idea of a change may work perfectly for you, but it may not be ideal for the other person. So certainty is a red flag. And whenever you feel certain about your great idea, it's likely time to pause. It's an opportunity for you to rethink whether your opinion is an ideal change at all. So dueling solutions or pushback or resistance is an indicator that your proposal does not match up enough with their notion of success. Fact is, we're not wired to resist. We're wired to succeed. A person resists something they believe does not help them be successful or even worse, appears to make it harder for them to succeed. So what can you do? Before we go there, let's pause again, Mark, and see if anything else has come up. Yeah, we do have um, two questions that came in, um, and you may be getting to this later in the presentation, but how do you help people get ready to be more open to assessing other stories or data? Yep, we're going to come to that next as we start talking about what you can do with all this information. So we'll get to that in just a minute. And the second question was, how do you get yourself to give up your sense of certainty to enable a change process to go forward? Well, that's a choice that we each have to make. And despite the fact that our brain wants everything to have a nice, neat solution that we can feel certain about so that we will act, the, the awareness that certainty ought to cause you to pause 
the intention of that is what matters. And so for you as an individual, um, can you come to grips with that? Can you embrace that concept? And can you practice it, uh, practice what it feels like to feel certain, and then to take that pause? It's like any other skill in life. You know, you got to take some work and some practice to, to get better at it. But it really is you setting an intention and then supporting those around you uh, to set that intention for themselves. And we're going to talk in just a minute. Those two questions really dovetail together in terms of how, how you might do that in an organization. Okay. Now, we have one other question that came in. What's the best way to approach people who have what appears to be passionate, strong beliefs, uh, strong enough to actually consider? Um, how, how do you approach people to, to help them genuinely consider another approach or viewpoint when they already have strong beliefs? Yeah, really difficult. And sometimes you can't. But we're going to talk about that in just a minute, uh, about what you might do to see if there is a possibility of that even. Okay. Uh, there's one Good other question. question. One other yep. question here. So, uh, so in order to navigate the uncertainty, we just have to be aware that it's there and choose to navigate purposefully. Um, to be aware of the uncertainty. Yeah. So I think you know that is the that is the primary function that our brains have to tackle, which is how to be how to act in the face of uncertainty, because everything is uncertain. That's why the brain doesn't need a full picture in order to act. It just needs to see enough. So that is the underlying condition, human condition. Uh, we just prefer to not think of it that way because that's maybe too scary or maybe too amorphous or maybe too ambiguous. Again, your brain wants to act, and it wants to be very certain about that action. So, it, yes, it is an intention and it's awareness. Okay. I think that's all the questions we have for all, for right now. Okay. All right. So let's dive into what you can do with what we've, what we've talked about. So here's the first thing. Change, a change, is not a noun. It's not a thing. It's a verb. It's a process that takes active energy despite what your brain prefers. Change is not a problem that just needs a great idea. It's really a dilemma. A dilemma is a balancing act of multiple valuable yet competing factors. And inside that unit of change, there are differing stories, differing notions of what success means, differing great ideas, different ways to slice the pie. A dilemma has no solution, but that doesn't mean you can't successfully navigate through with a strategy. Second thing, ask yourself this question. Have you used your analysis to craft your story or defend it? Understand where the story comes from. If you're asking others to embrace your great idea, is it really that great, idea, great an idea given their story? And if you find yourself being asked to change and that great idea doesn't sound so great, how might you share where it falls short? And thirdly, tap into a different brain pathway and realize that there is another possible pathway in the brain besides the press secretary pathway. But it takes a lot more energy, so it's not the preferred pathway. Here, the hidden brain does its thing and passes the story to the analytical functions. But rather than play press secretary and feel certain the brain is not fully convinced this is the best version. So what you feel is ambivalence. Now, instead of acting like a press secretary, those analytical functions act like an analyst, searching for new data, new perspectives, and new aspects that either maybe weren't considered or maybe weren't weighed as heavily as they might have been. And here's what's really key about this. Those analytical functions can't make the decision about what matters. But what they can do is feed that, their information back to the hidden brain, which must now consider this new information and decide to either A, defend the current story, or B, go in search of a better version. Now the processing has moved from the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex. And now the brain is in a frame of mind that says it's worthwhile to spend the extra energy, attention, and focus to figure it out. And this feedback loop goes over and over and over until a satisfactory story is found. Now what you feel is good, satisfied, at peace, and ready to move to the next step. So the question is, what does it take to activate this pathway instead? Well, it takes a catalyst, something that causes one's mind to pause and question. And often in organizations, people believe that if they just present the issue correctly, say just the right words, or just demand it be just so, that should be enough for people to follow the world as they want it to be. 
But the truth is, we cannot craft a catalyst. It's just not possible to know what is meaningful enough for another person to be willing to challenge their story and reconsider their sacred values. And it's not just the world as I want it to be. There's also the world as it is. And the wider there's a discrepancy between the two, the less likely is a person to play ball. This is when people feel hypocrisy and unfairness. So realize that when your, your great idea is introduced, an opinion and a corresponding story have already been formed before you even talk about the details. The hidden brain has already sent its message. This is good, this is bad, or I'm not sure. And their analytical functions have already assembled the facts, memories, and experiences that support that feeling. So if someone's worldview is a glass half empty, they already know why it's a bad idea. And if they look at the world as a glass half full, then they're looking about all the ways it might be helpful. And I'm sure that you've seen those sorts of responses um, in both directions. And a large part of this story is because of what each person in the fundamental unit of change feels about each other. Have you been, has each been trustworthy? This is defined quite well by the British ethicist and philosopher Honora O'Neill. And I would uh, direct you to both of these talks to give you a very practical um, concept of what it means to be trustworthy and also what it means to be credible, acting without deception or coercion. And I want to highlight this just a second because credibility very much depends on the data we use, the metrics we use, how they're gathered, how they're reported. Um, and, and if you're inadvertently being deceptive or coercive, unintentionally, but inadvertently, um, the effect will be the, be the same. And what I'll tell you is that if the answers about your trustworthiness and credibility are no, go back just a second, then that great idea that you have will never be heard, even if it's a truly great idea. And I'm sure you can recognize those sorts of challenges from your own experience. Continuous improvement methods can be applied to work out the details of a great idea, but it will never get there if the other person does not feel their back is covered, if their notion of success is not incorporated into the story. So understand something, which is that you cannot convince anyone of anything. Only their hidden brain can, view, can weigh the parameters and make the decision if you and your great idea are worth expending energy to be part of. And the analyst in their brain will only consider what you have to say. And their hidden brain will only be open to other possibilities if you're seen as trustworthy and credible. So if this is not the case, then the great idea doesn't matter. Because no matter how perfect it may be, um, unless trust has been demonstrated and each person sees the other as credible, it will go nowhere. Which is why respect for people is so essential and why it's an equal pillar alongside continuous improvement. So continuous improvement gets our attention because the brain wants to look at everything as a problem with a solution. And this process is defined and easily grasped. It's attractive to the analytical functions who want to craft the world as I want it to be. Respect, on the other hand, is not so clearly articulated. It gets less of our brain's attention, and it forces us to acknowledge the world as it is. In many ways, respect ought to be the foundation. So when you recognize dueling solutions, when there's not enough overlap in the stories, when the notions of success are differ too much, what we observe is resistance in its many faces. And actually, this resistance is actually your clue and what you should really be looking for. This is how you know where to aim your efforts. When you have somebody that uh, doesn't seem to be interested in challenging their own closely held beliefs, they will, they will indicate some resistance. There's your place to start and there's your place to explore. And I'd like to sort of point out that Resistance does have many faces, um, and a couple of that are interesting to me are, what about silence? What does silence represent in a conversation? I'm sure no or not following through or pushback or conflict are, are pretty clear representatives of that. But what about variation or suggestion? Would somebody be making a suggestion about something if they were pleased with what was going on? So... What I want to do is refine and expand our notion of respect. And I want to share, for me, what is a practical application. Respect is how each person in the fundamental unit of change responds to the resistance that surfaces. This is why certainty is a red flag, because respect requires curiosity, ambivalence, and openness. Asking your question, what am I, asking yourself the question, what am I missing? What am I dismissing here? 
That's how we move to the prefrontal cortex. That's why certainty is a red flag and why ambivalence is actually the place you want to be. So you can't manufacture a catalyst, but you can create the conditions where a catalyst can be effective for a person, where it can be seen for what it is. And in, excuse me, inside the fundamental unit of change, the process goal is openness to the possibilities. You don't have to convince somebody, and you can't convince somebody, to adopt what you think. But if you can create some openness to an expanded notion of success, then there's your opportunity. To take advantage of the analytical functions and their vast ability to analyze and deliberate in order to feed back to the hidden brain what it learns. To use that analysis to craft one's opinion rather than to defend one's opinion. And to support the hidden brain to reshuffle its priority of concerns, broaden its view of the sorting criteria to include things that were either missed or dismissed or not given as much weight as, they, as might have been relevant. And to assist it then in finding a better version of the story, usually one that was drowned out before. So now, instead of a focus, the preferred pathway in the brain, which wants to go straight to the choice, the application of respect surfaces differing notions of success, what each person needs the great idea to be or not be, what each person needs the choice to do or not do, what success looks like, and that culminates in a shared outcome. By the way, this is why you have to commit to the left side of the A3 before going to the right. Change the, sort, the sorting criteria and the story changes. Change the story, the desired outcome changes. Coalesce these into a shared outcome, and the truly great idea can emerge as an ideal change. And this is not the preferred path our brain wants to take, and it, but it, and it will not go there unless it sees the benefit in doing so. But through repetition and practice, you can gain the, the brain can gain the experience and feedback to realize that when working with another in the fundamental unit of change, this preferred, non-preferred path is the way to get to the best possible choice for both people, all things considered in the given conditions, or at least to avoid a misguided choice, which is one that could have been seen in retrospect not to have been the best one. So here's an example of such a routine. It's called the engagement kata. And you'll notice that it, there are three R's, recognize, respond, and reconcile. And if you'll note, the questions are posed in just a fashion to invite a response. They don't challenge a person's sacred values. They invite processing in the prefrontal cortex. So first R, recognize, is to identify whether many, one of the many faces of resistance is, is at play. And because people are not necessarily forthcoming with their views, you got to seek that out. Then the second step is to delve further into what that resistance means, what it represents to them and for them. Looking for insight not just from the analytical functions, asking what doesn't work, but to their notion of success, what doesn't work for them and to their hidden brain. And then asking how you might be inadvertently contributing to the resistance that they're expressing. Finally, together agreeing on this next step that is acceptable completes the kata. It would change efforts struggle. It may not be because the methodology failed. It may very well be because the methodology never had a chance to be deployed in a way that could work. The great idea never had a chance. The engagement cotter should open the door so whatever methodology you use has a chance to deliver. So where does creativity fit into all of this? If you believe that creativity and innovation are important for your organization's success, understand where that comes from. The definition that I like is the connection of previously unconnected thoughts. And that's a very energy-intensive affair for the brain. It will only go there once it has exhausted all the other known possibilities without finding an option that works and is workable. So the path to innovation goes straight through the non-preferred pathway. So if you want to encourage creativity, encourage working through the known options step-by-step, step, multiple iterations of the feedback loop in the brain. Take advantage of that. When people are, and when people are on board with a destination that has enough potential for success, that shared outcome, they will invest themselves to work through the possibilities and experiment with the options. And when none are satisfactory, their brain will go to its creative spaces to find it. So foster the process and trust the brain will tap into creativity when it needs to. So I want you to think back to the experience we started at the beginning, situation that you thought of yourself in. 
And I'm wondering if you see what's going on there now. And I'm wondering what you've learned here today and what your next step will be. And Mark, we can open it back up to some questions. Sure thing. And, you know, I'll invite people who had asked questions earlier, if you've got a follow-up or want clarification on anything, um, please go ahead and um, enter those questions. Um, and, and Mark, let's see, this is, yeah, so let, let's go ahead and let's do the uh, announcements, um, if you can advance okay. the slide. Do a few announcements, um, like we normally do, to let more um, questions come in. We'll have a lot of time to address those and continue the conversation. So if you can advance the slide, please. We want to tell you about our next webinars. The next presentation webinar is going to be on April 8th. It's titled Coaching Strategies for Leaders. It's going to be presented by Steve Kane. He's uh, with uh, our friends at Gemba Academy. We like their um, trainings, uh, you know, their, their website and their uh, um, training uh, quite a bit. That's going to be at one o'clock on April 8th. You can register for that right now or maybe better yet after the webinar, immediately after the webinar, you can go to kinexus.com slash webinars and register for that. That is open to all. And then if you are a Kinexus customer on March 12th, um, we're going to have the, uh, the latest Kinexus training team office hours. And then um, the registration will be available soon. Uh, on March 13th, Greg Jacobson and I are going to do another um, edition of our Ask Us Anything um, webinar series. So that's webinars. And then we also have some other resources that we'd like to tell you about. You can advance that, please. So if you um, want to check out all of the past webinars, you can find the Continuous Improvement Webinars on Demand library. You can go to kinexus.com slash webinars and look for a link in the right-hand uh, side of the page that will um, give you free access to um, all of the great content from the last uh, five years or so. Um, and then you can, uh, we invite you to check out our blog, which you can uh, find at blog.kinexus.com. And we also want to tell you about uh, our podcast series. If you can go, okay, there we go. Um, you can find this at kinexus.com slash podcast. You can find it uh, through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, um, probably any of the places that you would find, listen, and subscribe to podcasts. If you want to revisit the audio from Mark's presentation today, that will be added to the podcast feed. Um, later today uh, or tomorrow, and you can find the Ask Us Anythings, you can find um, all sorts of uh, conversations and content there in the podcast. So I invite you to check that out. And if you're already a subscriber, please rate and review uh, the podcast. And then with that, we will turn things back over to Q&A, and we'll share Mark's contact info here on the final slide. Um, invite you to check out his book's website, which is www.freethebrain.com. Uh, so, Mark, first question here is, is asking if you can expand upon the comment you made about the left-hand side and the right-hand side of an A3. Yeah. So the left-hand side of the A3 is all about um, gathering an understanding of what the current situation is. Um, and reaching a root cause that everybody sort of agrees to. The right side of the A3 is, of course, about um, putting countermeasures into place and seeing what happens. And so if we think about the right side, that countermeasure development side as being the analytical side, and we think about the left-hand side reaching that shared outcome of what is the root cause we want to look for, that's more consistent with the hidden brain side. And so, again, countermeasures and great ideas might be great, but not if everybody agrees that that answers the problem that they're having or the challenge, excuse me, the challenge that they're having. That's not what leads them to be successful. So the wisdom of those who developed the A3 was, without understanding it in these terms, um, understanding that they had to coalesce behind a shared, shared direction uh, before it was even worthwhile to start thinking about ways to deal with that direction. Um, and so in many ways, 
that A3 structure really mirrors uh, the process going on in a person's brain to be successful tackling tackling any issue. And I'm wondering, is that, uh, does, does that make sense to folks? Is that, uh, does that answer the elaboration? Well, I, I think it makes sense to me, and we'll see if there's a follow-up. But I think one other way, I'm curious your thoughts. I mean, yeah, you're, you're making me think of, you know, the left-hand side of the A3 is facts. It's observable. It's measurable. It's known. The right-hand side is all about the uncertainty of potential countermeasures and, and things that we think are workable. And, and that's, that's, that's the opinion that we then have to try to test out and see if it becomes more certain fact. Is that one way of looking at that? The right-hand side is uncertainty that we then have to resolve in our brains. Yeah. And, and brains are not going to go there unless they feel like um, there's enough reason to go there. And, and if there's not uh, a shared outcome, I, I continue to use that phrase, but if there's not a shared outcome of the direction that we're heading in, then what I come up with a countermeasure may work perfectly well from my work responsibilities, but it may not serve you at all in your work responsibilities. So that left side, which is gathering the fact, gathering what's visible, is really about understanding what each person needs to be successful in their responsibilities. So that when they come together to work on those countermeasures, they're all coming off the same page with the same um, the same criteria for what success will actually turn into, what it actually means. What do you think about that, Mark? Yeah. Um, no, I mean I, I think that makes sense, and and um, you know it's just one 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 question I was going to ask. You know, when when it comes to looking at countermeasures on an A3 or, or other um, choices we're making, um, you know, are, as more of a general question, are we less rational than we'd like to think um, when it comes to our reality and in, in choosing between alternatives, whether it's TVs or potential countermeasures or a candidate on the ballot? Yes, we're way less rational than we think we are. There is a, a guy named uh, Ian McGilchrist who wrote a book called uh, Master and His Emissary. And it's, it's a rather long book divided into two parts. The first part is an exhaustive compilation of the neuroscience research of the last 150 years. And that's a real slog to get through. But the second half, which is a bit more controversial, he takes his view, similar to what I'm talking about, and he applies that to different time periods in our history, history of mankind. And what he finds is that at some times, uh, societies are very focused on this world as I want to be um, approach. At other times, it's, it's way less so that sometimes it's better balanced. And he makes the case that since the Industrial Revolution, we have been very focused on the quote unquote world as I want it to be perspective which has really been good for us. I mean, if you think about clean air and clean water and, and developments and technology, that's all people taking the world and making it the way they want it to be. But that's not come without, uh, you know, some problems, you know, pollution, genocide, you know, disease, whatever. So uh, there's a balance, there's a balance there. And I think that we are probably have overshot the mark in terms of our reliance on big data. Um, and you may notice that inside of healthcare organizations, there's tons of data, reams and reams and reams of data. And what do we do with all that? What's it worth? Uh, what's the meaning of this stuff? How do we aggregate that in a way that's meaningful? So I think um, we are way less rational than, or we should be less rational than we are. And we, sh we need to be able to tap into those creative spaces, into those spaces where we really determine what matters and let that drive. What, how we want the world to be, as opposed to the other way around. Um, mm. So, I, and I think when it comes to choices, uh, and just watching this election is just a perfect example that you can translate into your organization. You know, look at how people are making their decisions. Looking, and that's what happens in your workplace. You're trying to get people to do something, and it doesn't help them, or they don't see that it helps them be more successful than what they're doing right now. They're not going to expend a whole lot of energy to go to go there with you. So I think and that's all sort of 
I don't really like to use the terms irrational and rational. I, I, I like to use sort of analytic and opinion. Um, those are all opinions. And those are happening in a space of brains that are not we're not privy to. So, yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah. I mean, ir- irrational kind of sounds like an insult or I, I think there's this bias. Like, oh, well, we, we should be rational. Right. Well, that's the that's the myth from Plato. Mm-hmm. You know, Plato had if you've ever seen the image of Plato's chariot, which has a chariot driver on the back with the whip directing the twin horses of emotion and desire. Mm-hmm. And the thought is that if we can just only rein them in, only control them, mm-hmm. uh, we'll be better off. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact of the matter, that's probably a myth that has not served us well for the last 2,000 years. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a quick follow-up here. What was the name of the book that you referenced? Um, uh, let me make sure I got it right. It's Master and His Emissary. Master and, and, name, Master and, yeah, Master his, and his Emissary. And the author is Ian McGilchrist. Okay. Great. Um, So we have some other questions here. Um, First comment, great presentation. And uh, the question, do you feel that the use of the kata process is a good format to support effective and successful change? Well, thanks for the question. So, you know, the way that our brains work is, and you can think about this, like the last time that you you tried to learn a new piece of software, right? So for the first period of time, you were having to focus on every click and every step. But after a while, what happens is that just sort of gets ingrained and moves into your hidden brains where you don't have to think about it as much. That only happens with practice. And, you know, there's a common phrase that we use a lot in coaching, which is, and, and you may want to, I'll start this phrase, and you guys out there may want to complete that. And Mark, maybe you'll complete it, which is that practice makes what? What Perfect. did you say, Mark? Yeah. <laughs> and that's a myth. Practice Perfect. doesn't make it. Yeah. Practice, makes, practice right. makes better. And so the, uh, something like a kata uh, uh, or, or any sort of routine allows you to focus on learning the steps in a straightforward manner so that your brain can encompass that and eventually move it into the hidden brain where you don't have to spend so much time working on it. So as a guide um, to getting to where you want to, routines are very, very helpful. That, that's all about what neuroplasticity, if you've heard of that term, neuroplasticity is about, which is the ability of your neurons to rewire themselves, uh, reconnect themselves um, in, different, in different ways um, to be able to do different things and think different ways. So let's see, we've got another question here. Uh, For clarification, the basic flow to inspire change is respect plus credibility equals change. I'm looking to simplify it as much as I can for my notes. Yeah, right. So again, if you want to establish a foundation where you could even practice respect as I define it, um, you have to be seen as being both trustworthy as a track record of trustworthiness, and also be credible on the particular issue at hand. you got to have both. Um, and that gives you the opportunity to practice respect, which is uh, I'm defining as you know, how I deal with the other person's resistance. And the major tool that I use to practice respect is curiosity. And my goal is to just create some openness to a different way of thinking about things, to a different way of to that, that expanded notion of success. And when a person feels like they can be more successful at something, they're all over it. So that's why it follows that sort of a sequence um, on this slide. Does that answer what you're interested in? We'll have to ask. Well, yeah. uh, oh, he said yes. <laughs> Thanks, Justin. Great, um, Justin. Let's see. Here's another question um, from Anne-Marie. When you approach a group with an idea to make a change to something that has always been done that way we're trying to change that the way it's always been how do you begin the presentation without alienating the group before you start that's a great question mm-hmm. i think the 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 challenge there is to invite people into the conversation so that you're not doing something to them you're doing something with them um, and so one of the ways that you might do that is is if there's been acknowledgement that the issue that's being discussed is actually a really important issue to be discussed, 
meaning that it's something that those folks are struggling with themselves. Um, that's that's one thing. If you're introducing something for an issue that people just don't feel is that big a priority, you know, it's not going to go anywhere. So one is um, approaching that, looking for the to create this openness, um, and that really comes down to what people view their notion of success as. Do you know what that is? Do you know what they're thinking? Do you know what's important to them? Do you know what they're struggling with? And then you can present your idea as an idea, not as uh, something that's going to be written in stone, all the while trying to invite that sort of openness that will create the opportunity for the conversation uh, around that. If you ever get stuck talking to, to another person or talking to a group of people, drop back to what is success and how are people looking at that? Because that's what drives their story. That's what drives what they are feeling. And what they're feeling is what's all important in, in that situation. Yeah. So what I would say is if you find yourself in that position, pause, think about what success is for you, think about what sex and success is for them, and can you merge those uh, into a shared outcome? And then you can talk about the idea of what might deliver on that shared outcome. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, and so um, Anne-Marie says, great advice. Thanks. I mean, what, what, what you're saying, Mark, I'll, I'll just kind of build on it. Um, yeah, I think there, there's a time when, um, I think we get in the trouble when people jump into convincing people to, uh, to try a solution instead of stepping back. And I, I think one of the great things about the A3 approach is, you know, it's meant to be uh, you know, the, 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 the A3 template is um, something we use to help gain alignment, get everyone literally on the same page around the problem statement. I think one, you know, one lesson I've learned sometimes the hard way is that if we can't get agreement that there's a problem, it's probably a waste of time to start talking about and debating and brainstorming solutions. And especially if you think about everybody has a ton of problems they're dealing with. So they're all prioritizing those problems. That's very much a hidden brain sort of function that they may not necessarily even be fully aware of themselves in terms of what's important. And so, again, the brain wants to jump to the choice. That's that's the preferred method. Uh, it takes less energy to do. It's easier to do. It's, it, and we can do that. But when we're working with somebody else, what our brain perceives as the great idea is not necessarily great for somebody else. So So mm -hmm. very true. And I think that's why, to me, the wisdom of that A3 is that it was split in half and you got to do one side before you do the other uh, and not short circuit the process, um, yeah. which is why that's essentially what we're doing here is drawing the process to where it needs to get to um, so that you can be successful when you get down to that ideal change. Yeah. And so what you've been talking about today, I mean, it reminds me of um, Daniel Kahneman and his book, um, Fast Thinking, Slow Thinking, that the fast thinking is the like the pattern recognition, snap reflex, eat, don't overexert our brain, our brain wants easy decisions, as opposed to a slow thinking um, process. Um, that's more deliberative, uh, might be one way of putting it. I mean, what, I'm curious your thoughts or connections to some of that work. Yeah, you know, I think one of the revelations for me is that that, you know, in his terminology of fast and slow are not different functions in the brain. Um, in other words, the hidden brain, the analytical brain are all working together, although separately. They're all working together all the time, whether we go fast or whether we go slow. It's just a matter of how each part is um, contributing. Um, and so, it, 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 you know, it's not like you're being hijacked by the lizard brain. Um, that, that's just not a really accurate way to think about it. Um, if you feel like you're being hijacked by, quote unquote, emotion, understand that your analytical parts have already embraced that story and they have already given words to that story because they deal in words and the hidden brain does not deals just in the feeling. So fast, fast and slow um, is a very um, binary way to look at it, uh, which and to me, I think um, it's, it's more of a fluid interaction, uh, a feedback loop, if you will, uh, going on all the time until we get to somewhere where we're either at peace and feel good about it or we're ambivalent about it or, you know, we're quote unquote certain about it. Um, yeah. You know, Kahneman had a really interesting, they, they did a great experiment um, in which they took people and just talking in terms of how people sort of um, interpret things. 
they took people they did one or two things and I'll, I'll do this to you mark so you can you can answer these questions but uh they took people and they said to them okay i'm giving you five hundred dollars you have five hundred dollars it's yours to do whatever you want with it yeah no, i'm gonna you. give you I'm, yeah so i'm gonna give you an opportunity for a bet though mark uh and the bet is that if you win the bet i'll double your money and if you lose the bet you give me back the 500 which would you choose I guess I'd want to know what the odds, like, is it even odds flip of a coin or what <laughs> What are the odds? What's the bet? <laughs> Whatever odds you want them to be. Let's call it flip of the coin. Flip of the coin. Um, Definitely. The 500. No, thanks. <laughs> no, yeah. no, 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 thanks to the bet. Right, right. So, right. And that's how most people would answer that. It's that, you know, a bird in the hand's worth two in the bush, so to speak. Well, the expected value, the expected value of zero or a thousand is still five hundred, but I'll take the certainty of well, I've got five hundred, so why why risk it? Right, why risk something that you already have that that's valuable to you? So then they took the same people and they asked them a different question. All right, you're giving me five hundred dollars. You're going to lose five hundred dollars. Just that's it. Just accept it. Um, now I'm going to give you a bet, and the bet is if you win the bet, you don't owe me anything, and if you lose the bet. You owe me twice as much. Hmm. That which do you take? <laughs> I don't want to lose twice as much. Uh, well, I, no, I don't see. I don't. Yeah, I'm, I'm struggling with that one more. Do I take the certainty, or do I take the chance that I don't lose anything? That that's it's funny. That's that that is more difficult to answer, at least for me, when it's framed as. Uh, the the when the bird in the hand is a loss. I mean, what, how would you expect people to answer that? Yeah, so most people take the bet. So think about just a second. When we have something and we're afraid to lose it, we're, we're, we're risk averse. And when it can only get worse, we're willing to take the chance. Hmm. So think about that in what you propose to somebody. If, you're, if they've got a way that they do things that are, you know, they may not be the greatest, but at least I know what that is. And now you challenge them to do something better or not, they're less likely to want to do that. They've got something to lose. Whereas if things are horrible and, and it can only get worse, um, mm -hmm. why not take the risk? It's going to only get worse. Again, if you're approaching something with a group of people and they've got something that kind of works okay, they're going to be less likely to be to embrace a change than if things are just really horrible, they'll, they'll, they'll give it a shot. Um, so that's an ex interesting experiment to think about in terms of how you approach someone else or someone in terms of where they're at in terms of this conversation about reaching a shared outcome and what that outcome needs to do or not do, mm -hmm. uh, what it needs to be or not be to be successful and, to, and, to, and to, to garner their engagement, to be willing to spend the extra energy, you know, to work it out, work out the details. Yeah. How about that? Very interesting thought experiment. Someone else answered, I feel like taking the bet and even chancing winning double money is better because even if I lose, I'm back to zero, which is where I was in the first place. So basically no gain and no loss. Sure. And I'll, I'll say when, when Kahneman and Tversky ran that experiment, uh, it wasn't 100% for either of those, but more people tended to, to yeah. not take the first bet and to take the second bet. Uh, but if, uh, if that's how you feel about it, it right on. Well, good. Well, very, very interesting. And Mark, thank you for um, doing the presentation today. Thank you to everybody for um, the questions and um, all of the interaction that we did outside of the, uh, the presentation. So um, Mark's email address was there on screen. He's, he's getting to it. There we go. Jabinmm at AOL.com. If you've got um, other questions, or if you want to follow up with Mark, um, again, I invite you to go check out the website for his book, uh, freethebrain.com. You can find the book uh, on Amazon, and um, I'm sure um, you find, again, I point you to the website. So um, that that's all for today. But uh, again, Mark, thank you so much for doing this, and um, really enjoy it. There's a lot to chew on and a lot to think about. There's one other comment here. Or somebody said, basically, my brain is hurting right now as I'm trying to absorb it. So um, I'll, I'll invite I'll invite people. They can check out the recording. They can listen to the podcast if uh, you know, second chance to let all of this sink in. But Mark, uh, Mark, final thought before we uh, before we close. 
Yeah, I'm not surprised that your brain is hurting. It's it, over the last ten years, mine's been hurting a lot, and <laughs> I, I think a lot of this just challenges what our, um, you know, what the, the conceptual belief is about about all this sort of stuff. So I would invite you to chew on this, let it sit for a while, get in touch with me if you've got some questions. Don't expect to grasp it all at once, but uh, let it percolate in there. See see what comes out. See how it affects what you do uh, day to day. Well, great. So there, there are other thank yous coming in and a, and a suggestion. This needs to be a course. There's, uh, yeah, there's a lot to dig into. So, and and the book is, uh, there's a book. <laughs> um, but uh, thank you, Mark, for uh, a lot of thought starters. And we'll we'll have to think about this more and uh, read the book and and figure out, um, you know, on our own how to apply this to what we're doing. So again, Mark, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Mark, and thanks to all of you guys for, for being, along, being along on this ride. I'm much appreciated.